0: They coached me completely, but I'm a slow learner. Um, I found it so interesting getting here a little early, watching everybody come in without a mask. <laughs> um, two bodies that are completely like-minded in our theology. We are not a sister, well, we are kind of a sister church. We're really the daughter church. Um, this body if you don't know was the daughter of ridgecrest baptist church and then we were birthed into commerce commerce community church um but um probably because i'm one of the elders and for the last um, year and a half before i retired from caravide in june i like lived covid i mean i wasn't seeing patients because i'm old i'm high risk but I was writing policies that were being revised like every other day. And so we've been pretty um, encouraging at C3 about uh, following what we understand to be CDC guidance. And so basically everybody at our service has a mask on. I was surprised this morning um, that there are only a few of us. Um, For what it's worth, without creating animosity, this is not political, I promise, Um, I, I do encourage them while we're in this surge. Um... Patty and I moved to Greenville, and that's her right there, next to Jackie. Um, we moved here in 1987, and I went to work for what was, what has become Carevide for a short time. Then I joined Ken and Sheila Patterson in practice, and got to know Morris there. Well, we knew each other from Ridgecrest, but... But he practiced his counseling practice in our building, and um, we did family medicine, including obstetrics. And uh, it was a good time until the Lord moved me back to what is now Caravide. And I was their medical director for six years before deciding the Lord called me to seminary. Um, During that time, I uh, served on the Christian school board, and uh, Ridgecrest ordained me to the gospel ministry sensing a call now when i applied to dallas i did not know uh, if i was going to be leaving medicine or whether i was going to be a lay elder which is what i've become Um, but at any rate i was ordained and then when we planted crosspoint um, the uh, when ben came he uh, we felt like he like paul should appoint the elders. And he did. He appointed four of us to join him on that first elder board, and it was it was a good time. Uh, lots of long conversations. We were five very different personalities. I'm sure Morris can attest to that. And um, and it was it was good. Um, then in fourteen years ago, two thousand seven, um, we felt like there was a, there should be a church like ours in commerce uh, with a real heart for college students, and so we planted. And uh, the first services were on our back porch even before we took possession of our home there, and then we moved indoors for a while, and we've been mobile ever since. Um, As I said, I'm a family doctor, um, but I retired a few months ago after years of uh, executive leadership at CareVide and not much patient care. Um, So now I'm a retired doctor, and an unpaid elder, as we call them non-vocational. Brady's dad and I are are those, um, people who aren't paid by C3. Uh, but anyway, when I had this opportunity to fill in and to help here, I jumped at the opportunity because I really haven't been back here for a worship service. If you remember your old King James uh, passage about husbands there too leave their wives, and, or leave their family and cleave to their wives. And I've kind of adopted that in other things. I've not been back to Ridgecrest since we left there, and I've not been back here to worship uh, since, since we left. Um, leave and cleave. Uh, I try to focus on the people that are right in front of me. Um, that's enough about me. Let me give you some background on this sermon. If you've been listening... To this sermon series on James over the last several weeks, I find this really distracting, um, you've already discovered James' emphasis on living out your faith as a doer of the word and not a hearer only. If this is your first sermon on James, that emphasis of James is a vital one to understand, likely the reason he was inspired to write the letter. It would seem that he developed this theme in the context of the social conflict at the time that continues today between rich and poor, particularly in the church, as well as the spiritual conflict between factions in the church. James wrote his letter under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which we believe guarantees its truth. The Bible is inspired, God is truthful, the Word is true. He wrote to people in Christian churches like our two churches like C3 and like Crosspoint. Uh, Some who heard this letter as it was read to them in their churches were God's children, and apparently some were not, just like here and just like at C3. There are always weeds that look like wheat growing among the wheat. That's what the Bible says. James told them, that if they said they believed in Jesus but did not love with their actions, that is, if they were only hearers of the word, their claim to faith was questionable. He told them that if a claimed faith was not on display through loving works, it was not a real living faith, it was a dead faith, it was not saving faith. In James 2.19, James says that there is a form of belief in God that is clearly not saving faith because he says even the demons believe and shudder. That is, they know he is God, but they do not love him or look to him for salvation. I would like to point out something that I hope every member of this body knows, but that some present may not know, that we were all, all of us, At one time, dead spiritually, before the Lord gave us a new spiritual heart. Those of us who are believing now cannot boast over our family members, our friends, our acquaintances who do not yet believe. Our faith was a gift, not something we deserved. It was not a work of our will, but of God's will. It was a display of His providence in our lives. I was thinking a title thing was going to go up. It's okay. But since I just mentioned that word, I want you to know that two words I want you to leave bouncing around in your brain are presumption, our presumption, and providence, our Heavenly Father's providence. So presumption, providence. Um, Again, our faith was a display of His providence in our lives. Let's read from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, chapter 2. If you'll turn there, and I'll read it starting in verse 1, Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. The passions of our flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature That we should walk in them. At C3, we've just finished a summer study of 1 John in our home, and John's recurring message in that letter is the truth that real Christians believe in Jesus as the only begotten Son of God, born in the flesh, who lived a perfectly sinless life, who suffered and died the death each of us deserved for our sins and then was raised in power, guaranteeing the resurrection of all those and only those who believe. That Jesus. Not some watered-down, universalist Jesus. John goes on to make it clear that true believers also obey Jesus' commandments and love God and his children. John wrote First John that letter, to assure us of life in the name of Jesus for all who have an overall growth in those areas of obedience and love. It is not an expectation of perfect holiness in this life in our flesh. Good doctrine, belief in the real Jesus, leads to an increasing pattern over time in holy living. Obedience to his commands and love for one another are things we grow in. We don't become perfect at right away. Everyone who's a Christian knows that. This is the consistent message of the New Testament, not just in James, where we're looking today, not just in Paul's letters, for example, to the Ephesians, and not only in 1 John, or the rest of John's writings. I find Eugene Peterson's introduction to James and the message really helpful, and i like to just read a bit of it. I hope you haven't heard it already, but it's really good. So hearing it twice wouldn't be the worst thing. Um, He writes, When Christian believers gather in churches, everything that can go wrong sooner or later does. Do I hear an amen? (laughs) Amen. Outsiders, on observing this, conclude that there is nothing to the religious business except, perhaps, business and dishonest business at that. Insiders, church members, see it differently. Just as a hospital collects the sick under one roof and labels them as such, the church collects sinners. Praise God. I've read this a dozen times, and it just kind of made me tear up a little. Um, sorry about that. Many of the people outside the hospital are every bit as sick as the ones inside, and their illnesses are either dis- are undiagnosed or disguised. It's similar with sinners outside the church. So Christian churches are not, as a rule, model communities of good behavior. We sometimes pretend, don't we, on Sunday mornings, but... That's not, that's not Peterson there. They are, rather, places where human misbehavior is brought out in the open, faced, and dealt with. The letter of James shows one of the church's early pastors skillfully going about his work of confronting, diagnosing, and dealing with areas of misbelief and misbehavior that had turned up in congregations committed to his care. Deep and living wisdom is on display here, Wisdom, both rare and essential. Wisdom is not primarily knowing the truth, although it certainly includes that. It is skill in living. For what good is a truth if we don't know how to live it? What good is an intention if we can't sustain it? So today we're going to hear James in this letter, breathed out by God, confronting, diagnosing, and dealing with a particular area of misbelief and misbehavior, as Peterson calls them. This misbelief is our presumption that we have control over our own lives. The misbehavior is our tendency to act out of this misbelief by not acknowledging and honoring God for his providence in our lives. Bad doctrine regularly leads to bad living, my goal this morning is that we will all move away from an attitude of presumption to an understanding of and love for God's providence in our lives and this will change how we think and how we live and that God will be honored by this change that he brings about by his spirit through the preaching of his word. I also hope we'll be more and more doers of the word and not hearers only to the glory of our Lord. Jesus Christ. Are you are you a prayerless planner sometimes? All the time? I am. Do you put together one-year, five-year and 10-year plans for your life without acknowledging God's providence? I've done this. But now the plans do tend to be shorter. Uh, I'm old, 67. Who knows how much time is left? Maybe not 10. Uh, maybe not one. Maybe not a day. Do you try to get all your ducks lined up without praying? I do. Do you try to do everything you can without prayer to limit bad things happening to you or if you have a family, to your spouse and kids? I do. Do you have the tendency to look to science and medicine for answers like counseling plans, medical prescriptions, surgical solutions before you even think about praying? I do. Professional danger, I think. Do you trust science and medicine more than God? I don't think I do this in my mind. However, my behavior might sometimes argue against that head knowledge. In those times, am I a hearer of the word and not a doer? probably, probably so. It should be clear from my answers to those questions that I needed to study this passage more than most of you need to hear my explanation of it. Um, In your weakness, I am made strong, the Lord said to Paul, right? Um, So hopefully this will help all of us. My role in this pulpit, as I understand it, is to try to practice expository preaching. I believe that's what's always done here, too, which is the communication of a biblical concept derived from and transmitted through a historical, grammatical, literary study of a passage in its context, which the Holy Spirit first applies to the personality and the experience of the preacher and then through him to his hearers. It's not supposed to be my opinions. It's supposed to be God's word explained accurately and applied to our hearts. Please receive this word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things are so. It's my encouragement to you, just as the Berean Christians did with Paul when he taught them, be more noble like them. See Acts 17, 10 and eleven, if you want to check out that story if you're not familiar with it. Essentially Paul was encouraging people to check him. Make sure that what he was teaching was right. Don't leave here and never think about James four, thirteen through seventeen again. Don't think. I want you to think about presumption and providence again check my words. Again, Acts 17, 10, 11 tells us how we should receive preaching and teaching in the church. Uh, I'm going to read James 4, 13 through 17 altogether first. Um, I think it's the habit here to have everybody stand for the reading of God's Word. So James writes, come now, you who say... as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. May God bless the reading of his word. You can go ahead and sit back down again. Please pray with me. Father, you know that apart from Jesus, none of us can do anything good. I can't share your word truthfully. People can't receive it uh, with open hearts. None of us can do this apart from your Son. We pray that you would fill us with your Spirit, that you would enable me to preach and all of us to hear. We trust you. To do that work in us during this time. Father, please enable me to deliver a helpful message that's faithful to your word. Enable all of us in this place to move away from an attitude of presumption to a solid confidence and expressed confidence in your providence. Father, I pray that you'll use this time to bring about in our hearts more love for you and for our brothers and sisters in the faith and for our neighbors and for our enemies. Father, I pray that we will be more inclined to acknowledge your providence in our lives and to be less self-sufficient, less boastful, less arrogant. Father, I pray that we'll become more and more doers of the word and not hearers only. Father, I pray for clarity of speech, freedom from misleading speech. I pray for open hearts and minds, eyes that will see you, ears that will hear you. Father, we pray for saving work in our lives through this time in your word save the unsaved. Keep saving your children. We pray that we'll be under the influence of the Spirit this entire time. And Father, lastly, I just want to lift up Crosspoint as they search for a vocational pastor and preaching pastor. I guess the same role. I pray that you will bring the perfect person for them in your perfect timing. We ask all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. First off, I feel like I need to tell you what I understand to be the definition of the word providence since I used it in my title, and I want you to leave thinking about the sharp contrast between presumption on our part and God's providence. It's worth knowing that although providence is a Bible Truth, like the word Trinity, it's not a Bible word in the vast majority of English translations. I'll define providence by reading to you what John Piper says about it. I think, not to Piper yet, I think many people think the word providence only applies when something good happens, like the birth of a healthy baby or a good surgical outcome. The historical understanding of the word in the church is much bigger, much more inclusive. It embraces God's activity in everything, even in things he ordains that we may not like. His providence includes, for example, all the terrible things Satan did to Job and his family with God's providential permission. If you've never read the book of Job, I would encourage you to do so perhaps this afternoon, to see that while you still have providence on your mind. In our humanity, we do not often know the good that is coming through some of these events that we don't like, those events that feel terrible. Piper writes, Providence is God's seeing to everything, absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes, God sees to it that it happens. He then cites Isaiah 46, 9, and 10, where God is speaking, and God says, "'I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, "'My counsel will stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose.'" Piper also points to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 5, entitled Of Providence, which reads, God, the great creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern, does uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things, from the greatest even to the least, by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Pretty comprehensive. Okay, let's see what James has to say now in chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. I'll read 13 again to remind us, if you're not looking at your Bible. Come now, you who say... Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Come now is an attention seeking command. It draws people in. It's used here to make it clear that James is shifting to a new topic than the one you completed last Sunday. He then describes a person with a presumptive attitude a person who is presumptuous. His description of the person's thinking lacks specificity. Today or tomorrow, such and such a town, for a year, suggesting that the activity itself is not a critical issue. Planning is not wrong in itself. Verse 15 makes that clear. Planning presumptively is wrong. Some interpreters who approach the text I would argue, with their own agenda at seminary, they call that preaching eisegetically instead of exegetically, bringing your own mind into the text. Some people who approach this text with their own agenda see a criticism of profit-making business that is clearly not the point, okay? Because he makes that clear in the next couple of verses. What he's describing, what is wrong is an attitude that suggests the person believes they actually have control over their life for the next year. Or at the very least, even if they realize that's not true, they ignore God's providence in their life. The lack of specificity would suggest that we can legitimately apply the truths we learn from this passage to other situations. It's not just about business planning, Okay, Some of you aren't business people. I'm not. Um, there's messages for here, too. I think most of us make many plans. Plans like vacations after COVID. Five-year career plans. Plans for weddings before we're even engaged. Plans for our children, for instance, to be longhorns before they've even started grade school. Two of mine went to A&M. <laughs> One went to Stephen F., you know, so I'm the only Longhorn, sort of. These can be innocent plans that are completely made with a solid understanding that God is in control and that our plans very possibly will need adjusting to His reality. However, these plans might be sinfully presumptuous made without any recognition of God's providence in our lives. Many of us are guilty of presuming a long life and decide that death in certain situations is premature. Is there really such a thing as a premature death? I would argue not, since the length of our days is in God's hands. Death at a young age is certainly sad, even tragic to us, but it is not premature according to God's plan. We seemingly, at least it seems to me, that we put ourselves on his throne when we think like that. James moves on in the next verse to clearly explain why presumption without acknowledging God's providence is, as Peterson describes it, misbelief and misbehavior. I'm going to back up and read 13 again just so you get the context of both verses together. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The idea of the word translated as mist is that of like steam from a pot, or the breath that you breathe out in the freezing air, both of which clearly are short-lived, aren't they? This is how God's Word describes our lives. We need to know that, I believe, really in the depths of our souls. We are mists that appear for a little time and then vanish. We have only a little while to trust Him for salvation and to live a life in the flesh, in the power of the Holy Spirit that glorifies him, we will have, his children will have all eternity to worship him in holiness. We only have a short time in this body to do so. James reminds us that we do not know our future at all, not even the most basic issue, that is, if we will even be alive in a year, our Lord Jesus Christ reminded us in the Sermon on the Mount, it's Matthew 6:27. if you're interested, that we cannot add a single hour to our span of life by being anxious. God controls our time. I wonder how many of those who have died in Hunt County in the last week assumed a month ago that they would be here for their next birthday, or 10, or 20, or 30, a good friend, one of our elders, lost his dad yesterday. He'd been pretty sick for a week, but he was pretty good a month ago. Um, James says we should not assume that we have any more time. You know, I've been living in this text, and so I was seriously concerned this morning that I might not make it here. <laughs> I was driving on the highway. Oh, goodness, what happens? What can I say? Um, it's good, though. I mean, I, I do think we should think that way. And I, Because of my profession, I, I did family medicine for most of uh, my career, but I did ER work for 10 years. And in both those roles, I saw lots of death. And, um, and not too many of them were anticipated. Um, One implication of possible unexpected death in the near future is the question of where you will be spending that eternity that makes this life seem like a mist. I want to address this next portion to unbelievers in the room. The Bible teaches that apart from faith in Christ, your deserved destiny is hell. Because you have not believed God's good news yet. You don't know God because you don't know His Son, Jesus Christ. The thief on the cross who trusted Christ was promised that He would be with our Lord in paradise that day because He trusted Christ for eternity and saw death staring Him in the face. Maybe if we saw death staring us in the face and we were unbelieving, we would come to repentance and faith through the power of the Spirit. The thief knew his sin, and he knew he needed a Redeemer, and that Christ was that Redeemer, the Anointed One in English, the Messiah in Hebrew, the Christ in Greek. Unbeliever, I urge you to see your sin and cry out to our Heavenly Father for salvation today. You may not have a tomorrow. Don't Be presumptuous. Look to God for his kind providence. Ask God to save you by his grace through faith in his Son. Ask God to save you by his grace through faith in his Son. It would seem that God would have us understand clearly that in the big picture, we are only on this earth for a very short time compared to eternity. He tells us in Psalm 90, verse 12, that numbering our days leads to wisdom. The psalmist wrote, teach us to number our ways that we may get a heart of wisdom. That is talking to all of God's people and perhaps unbelievers as well. It would seem that our culture is teaching that any death is premature and that we should be doing everything that is theoretically possible to prolong our lives. Do you get all this stuff about, you know, like long-living Or is that just something that 67-year-olds get in the mail? I mean, there's just, like, take this vitamin, do this, do that, eat less, whatever, and you'll live to be 120. Well, uh, that is not right. Um, It seems prudent to embrace common wisdom regarding health habits and useful therapeutics. It does not seem wise to be anxiously pursuing hope through science and medicine only. We must look to God. When science and medicine become an idol, I would argue that you're in trouble with God. Personally, the notion of my life being a seems to argue that whether I live to be 68 or 98 is irrelevant. Paul taught us in Philippians 1, in verses 21 through 23, that death is not to be feared by believers. He wrote, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. He goes on to talk about the fact that he expects to stay because he understood people needed him still. But he makes it clear, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that it is far better to be with the Lord... So I'm ready to embrace the notion that when my work is done, I am done. And I encourage you to embrace that notion too. I love my wife and my kids and my grandkids, but I do not understand those who fear death because they will lose time with loved ones. To be with Jesus is far better. James continues in verse 15 as he writes, Instead, instead of being presumptuous. You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James now makes it clear that it is God who determines the length of our lives. If he wills, we will live and do this or that. James seems to be saying, not only does the Lord determine whether or not we will live for the next year, but he also determines what we will do. This appears to agree with Proverbs 16:9, where it says, the heart of a man plans his way But the Lord establishes his steps. This is God's providence on display. Reading the same Piper writing on providence again, he says Providence is God's seeing to everything, absolutely everything that needs to be done to bring about his purposes, God sees to it that it happens. Next, James makes it clear what the problem is, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. I think it should be clear that James says such boasting in our arrogance is evil because it's presumptuous, demonstrates that when we think presumptively, we have a very exaggerated sense of our own importance. When we think this way, we deny God's providence. We seem to think we are God and he is not. How long we live or how short our life is are both examples of his providence as he displays his omnipotence, his infinite power. Does it surprise you that something many of us do all the time without thought is called boasting and that we are called arrogant for doing it and that such arrogant boasting is evil? Is your immediate reaction to think something like, that's ridiculous. All I did was express a business plan. All I did was presume that my child would live for another year because the average life expectancy is in the 70s or 80s. Is James wrong? Is that what's causing you to react that way uh, to the notion that having a plan and not mentioning God is arrogant, boasting, and evil. Is James wrong? Well, first, let me just say something most of us in this room know. James is not wrong. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 tells us, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. God is truth, the truth. His word is true as well. He can't lie. So what he inspired through James, breathed out through James, is not wrong. So what do you do when something you might do on a daily basis is called evil? Let's look to verse 17 and then back to 15 for an answer. So whoever... James writes, knows the right thing to do and fails to do it. For him, it is sin. And then back to 4.15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. What's the right thing to do? To trust and acknowledge in words expressed out loud God's providence, to believe that he knows what is best for the good of his children and for his glory and to say so out loud. So what's the sin? In this case, it's a non-action. You fail to do it. It's a passive sin. It's failing to acknowledge that God's will determines our destiny. The other side of that coin is to presume we control our future. Don't be presumptuous. Trust God's providence. Say the words. I have a good friend, Eric knows him, um, who's very conscientious about inserting the phrase, Lord willing, into a sentence whenever he's talking about future plans or hopes. I'll text him and say, Can we get together and discuss Calvin next Sunday morning, which we do most Sunday mornings? Um, and he'll say, Yes, Lord willing. Um, at first, I found it kind of annoying. But the more time I've spent with him, the more I've come to understand that he's sincerely trying to be obedient to this text. And so now I'm doing it more than in the past. I do believe the simple act of saying something to the effect that God's will is supreme over all our planning is a good thing to do and is consistent with what James is teaching in this text. Acknowledging out loud... The fact that God controls the length of our lives also seems to be good. What I'm not doing, what I'm not encouraging here, is for you to insert this phrase or one like it as some sort of good luck mantra that will keep God's punishment away, resulting in a longer life for you or a good result for some other plan you have. I do not recommend superstition. James simply seems to be saying that we should always have a clear knowledge that it is God's providence that determines all things in our lives and that we should acknowledge that truth and praise him for it. He is the all-powerful, infinitely wise, perfectly loving father of all who believe in his son. And we can trust that all his providential choices for us are for our good and for his glory. might it make a difference in the lives of some people in your circle of acquaintances if you routinely acknowledged God's providence as you were talking about appointments, get-togethers, that you didn't talk about going to a meeting with your boss without saying, if God's willing and I'm still alive, I will be there, you know, so that your boss hears that testimony to God's providence. Um, might annoy him at first, but it's good and it's true. Now, let's think back to this core truth of the letter of James, that faith apart from works is dead. If you've wondered this morning or over the last several weeks, as you've been hearing this book, whether or not you're truly saved, whether your faith is alive or dead, whether it's real or imagined, I would encourage you to cry out to God just as you are, begging him to change your heart and your life choices, enabling him to trust you more. I would encourage you, going forward, to participate in his means of grace, things like reading your Bible, praying, worshiping in community, attending a small group, memorizing scripture, the list goes on. Think about, this is, radical, think about the seemingly radical idea of spending more time with God through his means of grace over the course of your week than you do with all your screens doing other things for entertainment. As you practice these means of grace, asking God to make you more like Christ through them, desiring deeper communion with God through them, he promises to give you true and living faith if you're not believing all who cry out to him. He responds to. For the believers, he promises to increase your faith through your desperate use of means of grace, trusting the Spirit to change you. Over time, the Spirit will give you a confident assurance that you are, in fact, our Heavenly Father's child. That is the Christian walk. Cry out to God to give you a new heart, to change your heart. And at some point in that process, he also gives you clear assurance that you're his. James writes to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, teaching the truth that the lack of works provides some evidence that professed faith, spoken faith, might not be genuine. It's the hypocrites, like the Pharisees of Jesus' time, who profess a faith they do not possess who may not do the things that would be consistent with their professed faith. It is also true that some people who don't believe in Jesus Christ have an outward show of what I would call moralism, uh, good morals, uh, and that outward show might at times hide the reality that they do not love God or his children. They are, as our Lord Jesus Christ described them, whitewashed tombs, looking good on the outside with death and decay on the inside. If you your only picture of burial is in the ground, think about what they used to do oftentimes. They would have a building, and they'd put a body on a slab in there, and what Jesus was describing was this habit of whitewashing the outsides of the tomb so they would look pretty, but inside there was decaying flesh. And as Martha said, surely he stinketh anybody else here for that sermon 12, 13 years ago? Um, To believe in Jesus does not simply mean that you acknowledge that he lived in first century Palestine. It means that you believe that he is the son of God, that he came in the flesh, that he lived a perfect and sinless life, that he died the death each of us deserved, and that he rose in power, guaranteeing resurrection life for his children. True believers have been promised a life of being gradually made more and more holy. This will result in us increasingly living a life that displays the good works that our Father has prepared for all his children. Uh, Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A good work specifically tied to this text is expressing God's providence to those around you. If anything I've said today or any of the songs we're about to sing or anything else the Holy Spirit has used in your life recently has caused you to believe in Jesus for the first time, please approach one of the cross elders or deacons or members after the service and let them start the process of introducing you to the life of a disciple of Jesus in this church. Also, if you would like someone to pray with you, please don't hesitate to ask me or anyone else here. It's entirely possible, perhaps likely, that something I've said has reopened an old wound from a memory of a time in your life where God's providence resulted in pain in your life. Just because he is perfectly good and perfectly loving and all-powerful, it does not follow that events he has allowed into our lives always feel good, often, God allows very painful events into our lives for his hidden purposes. But if you are his child by grace through faith, these events are always for your good and for his glory. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, may your name be praised above all others. May you be honored for your providence in our lives. We beg you to remove presumption from our hearts. Enable us to know that apart from you, we can do nothing good and that you determine our paths. Father, please open the eyes of any unbelievers present to the beauty of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and give them grace to believe. Give each of us the grace necessary to be obedient to your commands, to love you with all our hearts, minds, souls, and strength. And to love our neighbors as ourselves. May we be known, Father, as Christians because of our love for one another. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, and in the power of your Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. amen.